Welcome to another episode of Relay Theology. A few weeks back, I was delighted to have the opportunity to interview Dr. Quentin Smith. We sat down not far from the Western Michigan University campus where he was professor of philosophy from 1993 until he retired in 2015. Dr. Smith received his bachelor's degree in philosophy from Antioch College and his PhD in philosophy from Boston College. He has written and published over 140 articles and has written and co-written several books, including one with William Lane Craig titled Theism, Atheism, and Big Bang Cosmology. While brief, the interview covers a wide variety of subjects, from Smith's 1986 book on the felt meanings of the world, to his contributions to the problem of evil, focusing on evil natural laws, as well as his thoughts on some contemporary theistic arguments. Here now is my interview with Dr. Quentin Smith. Quentin, thanks so much for agreeing to this interview. Typically, the first question I like to ask our guests is biographical in nature, and so I, I think I'll begin there. What is your background with regard to religious beliefs or irreligious beliefs? Well, my parents were atheists, and they brought me up to be an atheist, and they brought my three brothers to be up an atheist, and they're just as confident in atheism as I am, but they don't think about it, and they're not philosophers. And I, I became a philosopher, so I began picking up arguments for atheism. Because so. a lot of people, you know, were brought up to be, you know, either atheists or theists, right. and many of them don't particularly question those assumptions. Right. They kind of, they yeah. stew in their their respective context, right? What led you into thinking about these issues philosophically? I think it was primarily my interest in philosophy, and then that was one of the areas in philosophy, is philosophy religion, so mm -hmm. I became interested in that, and uh, I think uh, my first became a philosopher when I was 17, it was uh, through reading Nietzsche, Nietzsche's Will to Power, okay. and his diagnosis of nihilism, and the mm -hmm. death of God, and things like that, so that was my first encounter with issues about atheism. And that was just that kind of sparked uh, your interest yeah, there? Yeah, not not a fit in with my thinking, and that influenced my thinking. Sure. And then I went on from there. I, I started off being a existentialist, phenomenological philosopher. Okay. My first book was in that area, Felt Means the World, and that defended an atheistic view of, of the meaning of the world. So the basic question in that book was, uh, uh, God is dead, as Nietzsche said, so uh, does that mean that human life and the world are meaningless? And I argued no, that they're our meanings, I call it felt meanings of the world, mm -hmm. which which are appreciated in various emotional responses, and I describe those, and I they vary from uh, meanings grasped in despair, which is meaninglessness, and, and joy, which is fulfillment, and uh, I basically argue that there could be sufficient metaphysical meanings mm. if atheism is true, as if theism is true. Right. And so that uh, theism need not uh, be the area of meaning in, in, the, in the area of metaphysics. Right. Where the world is meaningful only if God exists, and if God doesn't exist, then everything's meaningless. Philosopher William Lane Craig is, right, is yeah. probably one of the best known defenders of, of an argument yeah. to that. Yeah, he, he and I co-authored a book together. 
Yeah. Because of atheism, Big Bang, cosmology. Right, right. Yeah, I think his, his argument with regard to the meaning of life has to do with, at least, at least as far as I remember, uh, life is meaningful only to the degree that it plays some significant role in the kind of ultimate aim of the universe, essentially, you know, that we play a part in God's plan. Yeah, and I, I would argue that meaning need not be understood in terms of aims and purposes. Mm-hmm. It can be understood in terms of the ways in which the world as a whole is important. Right. And, uh, or is valuable. And uh, I would say, for example, that the, in global joy, that motion, we experience the world whole as fulfilled completely in as much as it just exists. And existence is a fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And so uh, even though it doesn't exist for a purpose, just this mere existence is, 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 a, is a, a fulfillment meaning. Right. And, and uh, grasp and joy. What's, what's interesting here is that, so that this notion that, that one, that a life can, you know, this theistic notion that a life can only be meaningful if we're created for some end, Um, I've wondered, uh, it would seem at least, that there's an implication here on God's life, wherein if God is uncreated, and you know, by definition, uh, and therefore he he cannot exist for any particular end, uh, as we would exist for a particular end on theism, um, would that spell despair for God, who did not choose his existence, right? Right, it should should apply, consistently apply the categories of of meaning that theists apply, then you have to apply it to God mm-hmm. and say, well, God wasn't created for a purpose, and there is no purpose except what for him are subjective purpose, he adopts himself. Right. So uh, God, if he's allowed to have a meaningful existence by himself, then you have to allow that humans, exactly. if God doesn't exist, can have a meaningful lives by themselves. Yeah, I, I think that's... Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So you've written on the problem of evil, uh, specifically on something you call evil natural laws. Right. Um, So you call these evil natural laws, you're kind of talking about um, the the law of predation, the fact that to survive even as like a non-human animal, you have to pretty much eat another animal alive. Um, Just the, the thorough violence in nature. Uh, that's that seems to be almost a a an essential component of of just how nature has unfolded, and you argue that this these facts can be used in our in an argument against theism. Could you kind of give a, a a sketch of of what that argument might look like? Well, the idea that God is all powerful and all good, and He would have created a universe that that contains animals that can only live by savagely attacking and devouring other animals, mm-hmm. uh, which is a horrible way to live. And, and it doesn't seem plausible that, that a, a all-powerful, all-wise, and all-good being would have created uh, carnivorous animals, animals who, who engage in predatory behavior, because that's not, it's not something intrinsically good, something intrinsically horrible. Right. I mean, having to to kill other animals in order to live and possibly kill oneself by other animals. 
And uh, so that fact seems to be inconsistent with, with theism. But the law of the struggle for survival is not something that a, that a, a god would, would create nature to, to be uh, governed by. Yeah, and, and so you suggest in this argument that there doesn't seem to be any anything gained by creating the world in that way that wouldn't also be gained by just having the animals be uh, vegetarians, essentially. Right, yeah, right. It seems that if it really was a god, that he would have created all animals to be vegetarians, because then uh, no, you have the good, the good of the animals existing, but that doesn't come at the price of the evil of other animals being savagely attacked, and devoured, and eaten, and the suffering and death of that. You wouldn't have that, but you do have that. And that seems to be a strong component in the evidence that God doesn't exist. Right, and it doesn't seem to be serving any real, any real purpose, as you said. No. Um, now, so some of the uh, kind of objections, to, to consider a few objections to this kind of line of argument, um, Christian philosopher Richard Swinburne would argue that natural evil, which your natural laws, your, your evil natural laws would be a part of, that natural evil is necessary in part for us moral agents to knowingly perform morally significant actions. And so I, from what I can uh, tell, the, the thought here is that without knowledge of how our actions and how causal relations in the world can affect persons and non-human animals' lives for the good or for the better, without that kind of knowledge, um, then it doesn't seem like we would be able to do things that were intentionally good for other people or do things that were intentionally bad for, for, other, for other agents or, or what have you. So this knowledge of the way the world works in this way, of all these different sufferings and these, you know, the variety of sufferings and the variety of ecstasy that's felt, that that kind of knowledge is necessary in order to move about the world in a, in a morally significant way. That doesn't seem to be uh, plausible, though, because mm-hmm. we take into account of what we do consider when, when, when we engage in morally relevant action. Mm-hmm. We don't think about animals. We just think about other humans. You know, when we think about how to, how to live a moral life, we think about how other humans have lived their lives. And we, don't, we don't think, well, animals have lived in such and such a way. And right. Therefore, we should live in such and such a way. That doesn't seem to be relevant. So it seems like you could have no carnivorous animals at all, have all animals be vegetarian, mm-hmm. and that really would have no effect on, on how humans live their lives. Right. And it would also seem that it, it does seem to rely on an assumption that the, the goodness of gaining that kind of knowledge and the goodness of being able to act in that way uh, somehow overrides the just the profusion of suffering and of these evil natural laws. It, it's not at all obvious that this is a counterbalancing feature of the world. And there's also this notion that uh, for this for this kind of objection to get off the ground, it seems to assume that the only way that we could gain knowledge of the relevant sort, um, you know, even granting uh, these these assumptions that that our knowledge for being moral agents is somehow tied to carnivorous animals. If we grant that, it's, it, it seems to assume this objection, if it were to work, that the only way that we could become aware of these facts is to experience them as empirical findings in the world where these animals suffer, rather than um, as innate knowledge, for example, which 
would seem on theism to be rather plausible that God could just create humans with this knowledge in just right out of the box, essentially. Right, yeah. You could create humans with an innate knowledge of, of what is good and what is evil and the desire to do what's good. And then the animal behavior is really ultimately irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Now, you think about it. No one really considers animal behavior when, they, when, they, when they're considering their own moral behavior. The normal behavior is, is uh, if anything's relevant to that, it's just behavior of other humans. Some have recently argued this notion that, you know, kind of rejection of like neo-Cartesianism where they say these animals, these non-human animals, while they are suffering in this life, uh, perhaps there's an afterlife in which these this suffering, these evils, they're defeated in some sense by perhaps being placed in a larger narrative that ultimately defeats these evils. Um, what, what are some of your thoughts on that? Is that Well, it seems that that's stretching too far. I mean, it's pretty implausible. There's, a, there's a, another life in which animals exist that makes up for whatever sufferings they have in their life on Earth. Right. It's not normally even thought that animals are, have live after they die, you know, have souls or anything. And that's not, it's been part of traditional philosophy. That, uh, it's just humans that, that have an immortal soul. Mm-hmm. Animals don't. And, and so uh, the idea that animals' sufferings made up by afterlife of animals is, has not really been a part of the philosophical mainstream. It does seem... seem, That seems intrinsically implausible in any way, when you think about it. So given that the fine-tuning argument, so we're changing subjects a little bit here, but the fine-tuning argument is kind of the modern face of the design argument, suggesting that there are these various cosmological parameters of which their life-permitting range is very narrow, and the actual world, we happen to fall within that very narrow range of the total possible range. And so that this it is suggested, calls out for an explanation that is particularly um, well-fitting with theism and seems to be an awkward fit for a naturalist. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to what uh, what your thoughts are on, on that kind of argument. Well, it's hard to, hard to see what, uh, what plausible point there is to the arguments. I mean, if, if there's fine-tuning, exactly what what makes it fine-tuning? Mm-hmm. What is it fine-tuned for? And uh, uh, yeah, I think I think the notion here is that um, because life is a good thing, um, if we grant that assumption and we grant the assumption that God would want to bring about life. Um, then we might say that God has kind of monkeyed with the laws of physics, right? In such a way as to um, enter into the, the initial conditions a kind of bias toward life in such a way as to it being very finely tuned toward that end. Uh, so it's a kind of teleological explanation that brings about a universe that can give rise to life. And if you were to monkey with these levers, these, these initial conditions, or these, uh, these various cosmological parameters, if you were to change them even so slightly, then life wouldn't be possible, is the claim. And so this is being forwarded as an argument for the existence of God. 
Well, uh, if you if you think that the universe is fine-tuned towards life, then that by itself doesn't seem sufficient to, to be counted as evidence for God's existence, because you have to consider, well, what sort of life is are things fine-tuned for, mm -hmm. if, they, if they are fine-tuned, and uh, the, the imperfection of living creatures, the imperfection of the lives they live, yeah. uh, makes it dubious if, if how much of a, of a good that things have been fine-tuned for. And if things really were fine-tuned, they'd be fine-tuned towards lives that were uh, happy and healthy and, and, and good. And rather than full of the sufferings and evil and and problems that, that living beings are, are, are subject to, hmm. and uh, humans are fine-tuned to engage in, in war, for example, or fine-tuned to suffer various diseases mm -hmm. that uh, cast doubt on, on whether we're really fine-tuned towards something good. Right. So I guess what you're what you seem to be saying is that even if it is the case that one could argue that uh, the bare fact that life exists um, might favor theism, the kind of life that exists, right. the, na the way in which life exists, the, 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 the tendencies built within such life, um, and the context in which it exists, those factors are clearly pointing the other way and so it, right. perhaps it doesn't seem like when you take into consideration all of these facts that it doesn't seem to favor one over the other. Right. And also uh, the fine-tuned towards life, there's all sorts of higher forms of, of life that uh, that don't exist but that could exist. Mm -hmm. and it seems there is fine-tuning that be fine-tuning towards these higher forms of life. Yeah. Like towards beings that are you know, much more intelligent and uh, Psychologically mature and, and morally good than yeah. the humans. Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I, um, Evan Fails makes this point where um, humans could have you know humans have these kinds of uh, these dispositions toward uh, groupishness and toward all these different tribal tendencies, right? Um, and had we not had those, presumably the world would be a significantly better place. Um, at least the moral evil would would plausibly be significantly less. You you've previously advocated an argument in kind of response to an argument from consciousness to God. You've argued that actually consciousness, uh, or, the, or at least the fact that it seems to be physically dependent upon brains, that this fact is actually uh, evidence against the existence of like an immaterial being so it's right. again it's yeah. evidence against God right. um, could you talk a bit about about that kind of argument well all that we know about consciousness is, is that it's uh, dependent on brains and so consciousness is, is essentially brain dependent mm -hmm. and, and uh, the idea of a God is a consciousness that's not brain dependent and that contravenes everything we know about consciousness right so this would be kind of an inductive Right. Um, explanation here. Yeah. yeah, there's an inductive argument that uh, from consciousness is that uh, the inclusion would be that it probably is no brain independent consciousness. Right. All, all consciousness is, is brain dependent. Mm -hmm. And we have that from every, every uh, example of a living being or animal being that, that we know of. 
So the argument wouldn't be that the fact that we observe all minds that we know of to be tied to brains, it wouldn't be that that disproves God, it's just that all that all those facts clearly constitute some significant evidence against uh, such a being. Yeah, I Being so. detached from any kind of cause. Right, yeah, because okay. they make it they make it true that it's probable that all consciousness is, is, is tied to brains. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the suggestion that there is consciousness that isn't is just not consistent with, with all the evidence that we have. Thinking more about uh, the notion of God as, a, as an immaterial mind, as God relates to time, um, there are different views on this, of course. Some argue that uh, God prior to um, creating a universe exists in timelessness. There, it's just an atemporal existence, period. Um, others argue that uh, God has his own kind of time extension um, from which he uh, creates space-time, essentially. What are some of the kind of philosophical uh, issues that kind of pop up in, in conversations about God and time that potentially pose some significant problems for theism? Well, we can take time insofar as we know it is tied to the uh, psychological and physical processes mm-hmm. and to, to the events in time. And uh, time untied to those things we have no evidence that such a thing exists and, and such a time would not be like the time that we know to exist. Mm-hmm. And so there would be no uh, inductive evidence for, for a kind of either divine eternity or divine omnitemporality. So I'm, I'm curious, with, with your uh, interaction within uh, philosophy of religion, what are some neglected issues, problems, or arguments that you personally uh, would like to see given more attention in uh, among philosophers of religion? Well, I think one, I think one, you've already hinted that, is, is that uh, everything we know about consciousness and mentality is, is that it's brain-dependent. Right, like what does it mean for God to be a person if, if we can barely conceive of God as an immaterial mind? Yeah, it seems to be uh, we're using words beyond their their normal senses. I mean, talk about God as being a person. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all, all the ordinary criteria we use to recognize a person are involve uh, a mind uh, or the person uh, having uh, expressing itself and acting through through a body. What, in your opinion, would be the strongest theistic argument out there today? Uh, that you think um, requires more attention or hasn't been adequately addressed? Do um, you think there is any with uh, that kind of weight that um, that impresses you, I guess? Uh, no. No. I'm simply unimpressed by, by theism. I'm just surprised that some people are, are theists. There's just so, so few plausible arguments on behalf of it. Mm-hmm. And the basic view of theism it just seems intrinsically implausible. This makes it surprising why many people would believe that there is. If 
you appreciate the content and the tone of what Real Atheology has to offer, please consider writing a review of the show on iTunes or contributing a modest amount per episode to the Real Atheology Patreon. The Real Atheology intro music is by Thomas Smith, with all of the music by Jason Camone, The Lost State of Mind. We would like to thank our patrons, Matt Smith, Lucas Stewart, Matt Yellen, Richard Kane, John Danaher of the Philosophical Disquisitions blog, Kim Bushkovsky, Andrew Snyder, Jason Mekloeta, Evan Wirtz, Bob April, and Alexander Songe.